0: All right, listeners, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, depending on where you are and where you're listening to the pod today. Um, Very exciting interview about to happen. Um, So, true story a couple weeks ago, uh, some friends had come over to help me playtest a couple of my scenarios for Historicon. And they were telling me about this really, really, and this is the word they used, really sort of interesting game that they had played. Uh, the day before at the their own sort of game club. And it was called Wars of the Republic by Eric Farrington. And as they were describing it, my sort of little light bulb is going off in terms of that's a game that I want to play. Because for any of you listening out there that really like historical miniatures, I don't know about you, but I have always found it very difficult to find a non-tournament style, ancient slash medieval game that you can play with a lot of people that you could play one-on-one equally well. So anytime somebody uses the word interesting and ancient slash medieval, that's usually a moment where I say, you know, that's something I want to try. So again, second light bulb goes off. I'm like, I kind of want to find the author, see if I can get the author to come on. And sure enough, through the beauty of Instagram, I like literally see one of his posts, you know, the second that I'm thinking about this. So I hit him up and, uh, Eric Farrington. Uh, hello, sir. Hello. Thanks for having me on, Jared. I really appreciate it. No, of course. Uh, I'm very excited. This should be a really fun little conversation here. So again, uh, kudos to you, sir. And I know that you've got a few other games out there, but when my buddies were sort of describing, you know, like the command process and some of the yeah, uh, kind of like innovative little rules you have in Wars of the Republic, kudos to you, man. It, it sounds like a really, really cool game that I want to try.
1: Thanks. I appreciate that. I know when I was thinking about uh, designing the game, it's actually my second game. My first one was Men of Bronze, which is about ancient Greek hopolite combat. Uh, I was really interested in how do I make a scale model agnostic game that doesn't require any rebasing? um, And how do I create interesting command and control mechanics? And how do I um, make meaningful choices important in the game and do all that stuff and still make it fun and uh, easy for uh, anybody to pick up and play while trying to cover a huge swath of history and combat fighting style and and military doctrines. It was was challenging, but uh, hopefully I've, I've heard some good things about it. So hopefully I got there.
0: Yeah, it seems like a really, really cool game. And a couple of things that, you know, you had mentioned there. And again, by the way, for our listeners, don't worry, we're going to get into the backstory too, but a couple of things that just jumped out immediately. Um, Decision making, right? You know, t- to me, um, anytime I'm looking for a game, I'm looking for games that are in which I'm required to make decisions at every waking second when I'm playing, right? Because otherwise, it's like if you're running it or if you're playing it, you know, that little boredom factor can kind of kick in and all of a sudden the cell phone comes out. So the fact that you're making all of those decisions in Wars of the Republic, um, especially when it comes to how you use those command shits, and I'm probably uh, using the wrong terminology here, but, you know, those sort of command shits that you use in order to activate things and impact the battle... That stands out to me as something super important about your game. And I don't know. I don't know. Maybe we should be a little weird today. Maybe. I don't know if we want to get into that right now or not.
1: <laughs> should we? Uh, uh, you know, it's it's your podcast. I'll go wherever you want to go. But uh, yeah, we can get into it. Sure. Let's do it. So I think one of the things. Um, well, just just a backstory. I've been thinking about writing a Greek hoplite game since like 1999. Right. <laughs> um I was taking some, uh, I'm a history major from the University of Minnesota. I took some ancient history courses and I was like, this is really, really interesting stuff. I didn't do very well because all the names and words uh, were challenging to me back then. Um, But even back then I was thinking about how do do you make this and design this? And I've been various tinkerings and iterations with it till about, I don't know, probably like 2012-ish. I started to get a really good handle on, how to approach it and how to do it. And this is probably like the fifth version of it. And that eventually became Meta Bronze, which was like also published by Osprey, uses similar mechanics of uh Wars of the Republic, but again focuses really heavily on you know hoplite battles, which you know a little bit different than some of the some of the Republic uh, Roman battles. But anyway, but I took some of the base ideas from that game and brought it into the Wars of the Republic and tried to expand on them. So those key really elements that I was trying to get across in that game was, you know, the scale model and base agnostic. Because there's one thing about historical games that always drives me nuts is if you have to rebase anything. Because that just drives me crazy. I hate rebasing with a passion. It's it's just something that drives me crazy.
0: As As do um, we all. That was the other thing that jumped out at me immediately. Anytime you see a game where it's like you do not have to rebase anything, it's like... Five points like in terms of like the pointage that i need to play that game so
1: yeah exactly exactly because i mean i barely i'm sure many hobbyists feel the same way but i can barely manage to paint all the miniatures i need much less worry about re-putting them on different bases all the time so that was really important to me and i think i managed to go about that um by using some I, i wouldn't say they're new concepts i just I liberally stole them and applied them in this game, but around um, you know, using just measurement unit as a generic term, not defining a ground scale or a, a size scale at all. Um, honestly, I think you could play the game with like one person could have six millimeter miniatures multi-based and someone else could have 54 millimeter miniatures single-based and they could still fight a battle because it's really a unit versus unit game individual models aren't as important except as, I guess, blocks that move around the the battlefield. Um, And that's I intentionally designed it that way um, because, again, when I'm doing research on historical battles and looking at historical battles, you just look at maps and you see blocks moving around. And I'm like, that's basically what a unit in in, uh, Wars of the Republic should represent, one of those blocks. Um, Whether there's five guys in it As models, or there's 20 models in it, it didn't matter to me too much. I know a lot of historical war games, they really focus on like uh, how many men does a model equal and things like that. And to me, it just wasn't relevant. It was more of a footprint on the battlefield that was relevant as you go forward.
0: No, that makes total sense. And um, I like that concept because you give the player right, or the GM a little bit more sort of creativity on their end in order to kind of take, you know, the things that you've designed and then sort of transform them into into what they want. So for example, even just with a cursory flip through of, of uh Wars of the Republic, to me it's almost like depending on how many units you put out and how you design your table, you could either be playing a game in in which you're representing maybe a a massive battle from the era of the Punic Wars, let's say, or maybe you could even do it with a different scale figure and now you have a skirmish game, which is really cool. And um, the vibe that I get is that the feel of the game will be very similar when it it comes to the mechanics, whether you're thinking of the game as a skirmish or whether you're thinking the game as like a grand tactical game.
1: Yep, exactly. The rules, I mean, there's some rules in there about creating, like, armies with wings, like a middle, center, left. But it, it really doesn't impact the gameplay at all. Um, it's still a unit versus unit combat game, whether it's five units or, you know, 25 units. Um, the other thing that I, I really focused on a lot, because we were talking a little about painting miniatures, uh, I can usually only paint, like, 150 28mm miniatures a year. Right. Because of just my process and my schedule and all that fun stuff. So I wanted to design a game where it would be playable, where I could have two sides playable uh, in one year if I wanted to. So if I decided I was going to do you know, something about, like you said, the, the, the Punic Wars, I could sit down, plan it out and get it all done within one year and start playing games. Um, sure. I know it's it's fun to play a huge, massive battles. But realistically, that would take me like five to ten years. So I wanted to, I think the the term in the old days used to be called like bathtubbing it, you know, make it smaller. But I kind of, I, I call it like big battles, small armies, so to speak.
0: Yeah, that makes total sense. It's almost like that concept of like, almost like the a game in a box, you know, like... Everything sort of comes in it and you don't need, right, a 12 by 6 table in order to play a good game, right? Because most people don't necessarily have access to that, you know, even in some cases like gaming conventions, it's like table space can be limited, right? So I don't necessarily know how well a convention would go if every single person needed a massive table like that, you know, Um you're also in good company too, because I mean, there is a nice little history there when it comes to ancient war gaming, whether you're talking about DBA or even Armadi or things like that. So it's cool be, to be able to name your game in that same breath with those other, you know, classic games from decades, you know, past.
1: Yeah. I, I'm glad you mentioned DBA because um, a lot of folks that have played some of those classic games and then come and play Wars of the Republic, they'll notice right away that there's a, a difference between how I envision ancient battles compared to like DBA or La or, or or something like that. They focus a lot on building a battle line, mm-hmm. and in Wars of the Republic, there are, there are benefits to building a battle line that aren't necessarily hard coded into the rules. But if you use the rules correctly, a battle line can work. But it also it, it actually leans a little bit more heavily into the the, the newer concepts where. Fighting was done by individual units kind of moving forward and being aggressive and pushing and moving parts of the battle line around. So, so battles and wars of the Republic are actually relatively mobile with a lot of pushing and moving around. You generally aren't going to see two big, long battle lines just clashing together in generally a static way. I think it's much more mobile than that, leaning into some of the more modern theories of, of how ancient battles may have evolved. Now, I could talk about the different theories of how ancient battles evolved for quite a while. Be, but the, the the truth of the matter is nobody knows, right? Sure. Polybius gives us a really great uh, written description of this is how, you know, the the triplic, triplex acius, ae- and I'm probably mispronouncing a lot of words, so I apologize. But this is how the three-line Roman battle system works. This is how they rotate the troops, all that stuff. But the truth is I've read that literally hundreds of times, and I'm no closer to understanding how it actually works in right. – in, in, the real world than I was the first time I read it. No, absolutely. and there's a lot of different, yeah, and there's a lot of different interpretations of it. So there's no special rules necessarily hard coded in Wars of Republic to make that that formation work. But uh, when I was demoing the game with people who hadn't wargame before, they naturally made it work somehow. So. Gotcha. To me, I was feeling like, "Hey, I must have done something right (laughs) if uh, these people that uh, really never played war games before are trying to are figuring out kind of how to naturally build this checkerboard approach and how to use their different units." uh, It must be it must be on the right track. No, absolutely right. I mean, because again,
0: you know, uh, we'll talk a little bit about your experience with games uh, in a moment, but to me, uh, I find that when games. Are overloaded with special rules to get a feel for a time period. I think that sometimes can be a recipe for a little bit of disaster. To me, it's like, if you have a game that, that mechanically works, that has a command structure, that has a command system in the game that is a mobile game that, you know, plays fluidly one would hope that if the game is built correctly, you don't necessarily have to worry about all of those special rules that, you know, somebody has to remember, you know, dozens of different things in order to make their Roman army work. I don't know if that makes sense or not, but
1: Yeah. I can I tend to I kinda of think of that as a unified a unified theory of mechanics is kind of what I call it. Mm-hmm. I'm sure everybody designer has a different name for it. i like I said, I'm just a pro am designer, right? I professionally managed to publish some stuff, but I'm a Amateur. I have no formal training or I, anything about how to design games or anything like that. Where some people do, which amazes me. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of the things I'll talk about, I'm sure your listeners are like, "Well, that's not what that's called," but that's just what I call it. So I, I wouldn't, <laughs> I wouldn't worry about that at all.
0: Again, no <laughs> offense to our listeners out there, uh, you know, but the bottom line is like you've created something fun which and again like just even again um i used the word cursory earlier i'll use it again like even just a cursory look at you know the internet um so many people have so many nice things to say ab- about your game so i don't know i don't know if polybius you know if we pull him up out of the ground if he'd be too offended at, <laughs> at you know at, at your rules of people are kind of enjoying and getting a feel for for ancient wargaming so um, on that note, by the way, so yeah. So let's let's back up just a, a little bit. Um, how did you get into games?
1: Yeah. So I, <laughs> I followed the path which I call indie game developer path A. Gotcha. Which basically, when you listen to a lot of these podcasts and you listen to people's background, it it seems very similar. Mm-hmm. Right? I started started with D anD D right uh, way back in the eighties, and then from there uh, in a I think saw a very nice glossy ad in Dragon Magazine for Games Workshop, Rogue Trader stuff. So I went out and I, I found it, rode my bicycle to the bookstore and managed to find a used copy of the Rogue Trader softcover book. Nice. And that kind of took me along there. And I played probably Warhammer 40K primarily for until about 4th or 5th edition. And then I, I was really into like Necromunda, Gorkamunda or I'm sorry, Gorka Morka, and all those specialist games I really enjoyed quite a bit. So I dropped 40k and I was focusing a lot on the specialist games. And then um, after that, I just started dabbling in in other, as they killed specialist games, I just started dabbling in other areas, just to get a feel for what was out there. I wanted to expand, I was ready to expand. And I played Stargrunt 2, some Dirt Side, um, uh, and just Expanded out from there in various different years. The Osprey War Game series then came out, and I was like, This is amazing. I love this series because it gives you access to so many genres at such low point or, you know, a low entry level cost. I, I have every single one, and I've learned something from every single one. So I love them for that. Um, you know, so I, I just started expanding in all these different ways. And then um, I saw a video, basically. I think it was called Are You Old Enough to Play ancients or are you old enough to play historicals and I was like huh maybe it's time for me to think about that a little more and I just naturally started to go that that route again um and I know you do a lot of work with like introducing new people uh to historical which is fantastic and something I want to do more of myself but I followed that same route of RPG to fantasy sci-fi to finally to historical which I've seen so many people do it was kind of like a joke in the indie war game community that the first thing you do as an indie war gamer is you try and design a better Warhammer 40k.
0: <laughs> <It's> very <laughs> true. Very, very and, true.
1: And I'm not that <laughs> particularly different. I didn't try and design a better Warhammer 40k. It was probably around the time of the Gold Eye of Terror, uh, Fall of Medusa 5, whatever campaigns. That was really exciting to me, seeing how the community engaged with it and was creating their own stories and things like that. And I'm like, Hey, I want to do that too. So I tried to make some with some buddies on a forum. We made like our own online campaign. And as part of that, we made up all these different like little unique things for the campaign, like special characters and special rules and stuff like that. And I really started to dig into, uh, you know, basically making, making my own stuff for that. So I think my first thing I ever really designed and published was in like 2007 or eight, there was a fanzine on, I think it was called Portant at the time. Now I think, no, Warseer, Portant, one of the two. Yeah, well, both, I I, I
0: definitely remember both of those um, online platforms, so.
1: Yeah, yeah, so there are forums, and they created a fanzine there called Firebase, and I think in Firebase number seven, I published something called, uh, I think it was called Jungle Fight, and it's basically... Took the idea of the city fight codex at the time and made it into a jungle jungle warfare instead. That's because, great. Yeah. I don't really like the in the Catachan codex back in the day, they had all these special rules for jungle fighting, but no one ever did it because it was completely biased towards the jungle fighting. <laughs> yeah, it was,
0: yeah. I, I vividly remember that codex actually. Because yes. <laughs> I was playing Warhammer 40k at the same time. I yep. just, you know, if I can be so blunt, um, uh i just was never a big fan of the katachan models like they kind of had that like too much of that rambo feel to them you know like i always wondered how could these guys get this jacked you know (laughs) and then be really (laughs) stealthy out in the uh out out in the uh you know wilderness (laughs) then some of the proportions are a little oh my god yeah.
1: <laughs> you know, those are the early days of, oh, yeah. of plastic
0: stuff. So No, um, for sure. I vividly remember that. Yeah. It's like right around well, second edition and third edition. Um, but I think that codex came out. I feel like it was some kind of supplemental book to the guard book in yep. third edition, right? Am I, is my memory off or am I on? I
1: I think you're right there. It was a, it was his own separate book. I still have it, actually. Yeah. Um, but just the whole idea of it of like special rules for fighting in the jungle was really interesting. to me, And then the city fight codex came out and I'm like, Hey, I can do this, but just apply to a different war zone, mm-hmm. which I did. And then it went out in Firebase and they actually had a battle report using the rules and all that fun stuff. So that was pretty cool. Yeah. That and is was really like, cool. How'd that feel
0: to see uh, like, you know, to see it up there, uh, you know, for, for, for the world to see, so to speak.
1: Uh, it was, it felt good, but it was scary at the same time. Cause yeah, so um, one of the most common people things people ask me is, well, well how did you become a game designer? What did you, and I'm like, becoming a game designer is easy. You really only need two things. You need a game, and you need people willing to play it. Sure. That's it. Now you're a game designer. Congratulations. <laughs>
0: <laughs> right, right, right. But. And then you kind of put it out. Yeah, then you put it out there for people to play, and then, well, then there you go, right? Then you have to yep. see what people think, So, which is definitely terrifying On to right. some
1: extent. And I'm pretty convinced that's the number one reason people never become actual game designers because creating that first game, one, is hard. Yeah. And then two, putting it out in the open is... Um, yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Well, well, look,
0: again, everybody everybody out there knows I love them, you know, if they're a gamer, but gamers can be vicious. I mean, the c- crazy things that I've heard gamers say, like, as, as I watch them get worked up over a game, it's, you know, I can see why. Like, it's hard sometimes to run a game. It's hard sometimes to kind of, yeah. let alone... Your own game but like even just to run a scenario for people can sometimes be a bit a bit
1: overwhelming you know yep and and you know when it comes to the historical games especially like wars of the republic or men of bronze i guarantee guarantee there's thousands of people that know way more about the subject than i do and know more about individual battles and more more about individual um military doctrine of like carthage during this the first punic war and i Guarantee there's people you that know way more about that than me, but ultimately, you know, and and if you go to the Amazon reviews, there's 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 lots of great stuff, but there's always you know the one that's like not super happy about what you did. Like one thing that surprisingly I hear a lot about is you know we talked about the scale and model agnostic. It was like, so I, like I think I said in one in Men of Bronze, like oh yeah, Phalanx is like when I play, I just put ten guys out there, and you know that's what I consider the the unit for the Phalanx and I actually put it in writing in the book that that's what I did. And a lot of people were like, that's ridiculously small. Mm. I'm like, yeah, yeah, it is. It is ridiculously small, (laughs) but it's an abstraction, right? I mean, yeah, we have to abstract, especially if your table is only six by four. You have to abstract uh, these battles quite a bit. I mean, even at six millimeter, you have to still abstract some right. of the sizes of these battles. Well, so Well,
0: look, Eric, I, I think some people out there think that they're actually a hoplite, you know, and somehow <laughs> that they have a better connection than any of us. And it's like, frankly, like the, the effort that it takes to sit down and write a comment like that, it's just, it's just like put some more stands out. Who cares if the person is using 10 models or 20 or 30 or 80, you know, it's just that those are the kinds of things that always always kind of amazed me. I don't know. My I guess my advice is I, I wouldn't worry about it, you know what I mean? <laughs> if 10 figures looks good to you, who cares, you know?
1: Right. So. I've gotten to that place now, but back when I wrote uh, in 2007, I wasn't quite ready to do that. You weren't yet. ready for that kind
0: of feedback. <laughs> I got gotcha. you. Right. So um, let me ask you something then. So did you publish did you publish like did you publish anything else before these games? Like did you grow up as a writer or or is it just something that kind of sprung upon you like as, as you became a gamer.
1: It's so it's, I've never published anything before these Osprey games. Okay. Gotcha. Um, I dabbled in writing when I was younger. Then I moved away from it just because, you know, I, I was at college and then I decided I graduated college. And I'm like, okay, now I have to be a professional, which mm-hmm. I am. <laughs> I gotcha. got a, got a job, you know, did all that other stuff, worked through the corporate world. Um, and that takes a surprising amount of your energy. And then, you know, one day, I think the Osprey Wargaming series had been out for a year, and I had, I'd been dabbling. So I'd written a few games, and I'd been dabbling with basically Men of Bronze, and I happened to look at the Osprey website trying to figure out when the next uh, Osprey Wargaming series game was going to come out, and I happened to notice it said, uh, you know, open they were basically open to take submissions. And I very closely read what those submission guidelines were and I put together a pitch and I sent it to them and um, the, the editor there was kind enough to take a look at what I sent and they were interested in it and it kind of just snowballed from there so really it was I was very lucky most writers have to go through a very long um, going through lots of rejections I was very lucky I did not have to do that I just happened to see the right thing at the right time and hit it at the right time and uh, it just worked out for me. So then after I started working with, did men of bronze with them and finished that and it launched and we kind of got to get a feel for how successful it was. I actually put in a submission for uh, a Roman warfare game called conquest and uh, Rome, Rome in Italy. And it was really just focused on early Rome for, uh, to up until the, uh, you know, up until they consolidated control of Italy and that was going to be it. And like, that's good and all, but I think that might be a little too niche. Mm -hmm. What if, what, what, what if we did all of Roman history? I'm like, whoa, 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 that's way (laughs) too big. That's too much. So I, we, we compromised on, on, on how to do Wars of the Republic. And um, if you read Men of Bronze, there's a section about like the history and, you know, some of the, some of the historical setting. And they said for Wars of the Republic, because there's a very tight word count, So I sent them the first draft and looked and I said, no, all that history stuff has to go. And I was like, Oh, that hurt because I spent so much time researching it and all that stuff. And they're like, well, to be frank, if people need to know the basic history this isn't the book they're going to need to buy
0: <laughs> right and i guess from a marketing standpoint from a business model it's like osprey has so many of those history books so i would imagine right you know yeah. and i don't want to get you into any trouble with your uh, publishers but i would imagine they're hoping for those big bundle buys right
1: right and you that's kind I mean? of yeah that's kind of what they said too and i was like yeah you know what it makes sense that and thankfully they talked sense into me because even as it is without any of the historical content, it barely made the word count for a blue book. Right. Um, we still had to go and cut stuff out around some of the historical scenarios and things like that, that I had written gotcha. uh, to put in the book. So they were, they're much, much smarter around that than me. So a lot of people don't realize that those, those things have a very tight word count that the author has to fit in. Um, so that's why sometimes maybe you can be like, Oh, I, f- I re- really liked, you know, more scenarios or something like that. Well, Sorry, there's a no, word that, count you
0: have to hit. <laughs> I got you. No, I mean you're, you're you're totally right. I mean because you know even if you look at a game um, like like the Rampin series, you know mm-hmm. I always did sort of wonder, you know how I guess maybe the right word would be concise. You know just how sort of concise and how tight, um, you know that you know that series is. You know um, it always amazes me like how authors can you know, get a game onto that many, you know, pieces of paper, whereas, you know, you look at some other, you know, war games rules out there, and you're talking about hundreds of hundreds of pages, you know? Yep. So it's, uh, yeah, those games are super, super, super tight. Um, so, so Eric, let me ask you, how did you play test the game? Like, did you have a group of people around <laughs> you that 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 kind of kind of worked with you? Or what did that process look like?
1: That's always a fantastic question. I know gamer, uh, gamers out there are always interested in the playtesting process. Mm-hmm. So the there's a couple on my Blood and Spectacles blog, I talk a little bit about playtesting and I make it sound super formal and like it's really great and well thought out, but it's not that formal. <laughs> <laughs> gotcha. in, in the perfect world, this is what it would look like. But in reality, it doesn't look that way. Uh, so basically what you start out with is you you write the rules and you literally do abstract or theoreticals with no miniatures or anything, right? You just, I actually used a PowerPoint slide and I put boxes on it and I moved them around and then simulated or basically played the rules using the PowerPoint slides to see, does this even work? That's the first step. And that usually shows you a lot of the obvious glaring problems that you have. So then you sit down and you fix those. And then you get it to a point where you're like, okay, it's good enough where I can actually have someone else read it. <laughs> and for me, it was actually my child, who had been playing war games with me for a long time, was always the first person that saw it and helped me play test it. Oh, that's and cool. Say, okay, yeah. Uh, it's cool because, you know, they don't care anything about the history. They just care about winning. Right, <laughs> right, <being> right. <laughs> right. Now, so, you know the,
0: that's an interesting point, though, right? And it's come up on this podcast before of like, why do we play, right? What is yep. it about these games, you know? And I don't know, like, I don't know. I, I, I'm stammering just because I'm, I'm thinking about it. Um, on one hand, you know, I guess there is something to be said about sitting down to play a game. Let's say you're playing an American Civil War game about the Battle of Gettysburg. And man, you see all of those troop movements work exactly like the book. Uh, or, you know, like the book that you read about the battle. And I guess on, on, on one hand, that's really cool and interesting. But on the other hand, you know, do you want to play games that have interesting mechanics in which you're going to get a completely different feel for that battle, you know? Um, yep. So I don't know what your thoughts are on that. I guess maybe if I'm not being so circuitous here, you know, are you writing your rules to re- really reflect history or are you writing rules to have a fun time in a game? I guess maybe that yes. might be the question, what I'm posing to you.
1: Yes, so that's a great question. And actually, when I wrote my design philosophy, because I usually start out every game, I think of the concept, and then I think about, okay, what am I actually trying to do here? What are the key things that I want to happen in this game? And those are like my guideposts. And if I write mechanics that don't fill those guideposts, they eventually get axed. I eventually come to my senses and I ax them. So one of them is almost always create historical enough outcomes. <laughs> that makes sense. I mean, I'm not going to be like... Because one thing I really try and avoid is if this, then that rules. So if you're, what I mean by that is, okay, you're trying to recreate, like, I'm going to make up some things. Let's say you're trying to recreate this battle uh, and the way they fought in, I don't know, uh, the Punic Wars, right? But then you read an account of this one battle where, you know, the Defender's leapt off the wall, I'm making things up now, but leapt off the walls into a pile of hay and then formed up an attack. Like, do you really need rules about how to leap off walls into a pile of hay? Not really. Right. Not really. Those become, if this happens, then do that. Leave that up for individual scenario designers and things like that. Instead, you have to focus more on, okay, one, do the mechanics, are they playable first? Two, do they follow your other guidelines? Like, You know, being able to make choices, scale and model agnostic, um, unified theory of uh, uh, unified theory of rules. So you're always basically using the same rules over and over again. And then, if you still get historical enough outcomes, that's that's where you want to be. It doesn't need to be exactly perfect, like because you want some space as a gamer for people to be surprised. So like, there's a scenario in Wars of the Republic about the Battle of uh, Kine, right? Mm-hmm. I'm sure, again, I'm butchering that because I don't hear people say it very much, but, um, the, you're at, you know, the famous battle with the double envelopment. Everyone sure. knows this one. Everyone's, it's been like the, the, um, everyone's trying to recreate this battle. Mm-hmm. So I put a scenario in Wars of the Republic about it, but the thing is, when you write that scenario, everybody knows what happened at that battle and everybody knows how to avoid it. Well, wow. in theory, they know how to avoid it. Sure. So do you want the scenario to, exactly mimic what happened? Or do you want the gamer to have the chance to apply some of their knowledge to avoid that? And that's that's a difficult question. I actually find writing historical scenarios to be the toughest thing of game design because you don't want to make the scenario so lopsided that you can't avoid the outcome.
0: Yeah, why would somebody want to play, you know, ultimately? Exactly.
1: Exactly. But it has to be close enough where the same environment happens but can you, pull, can you change, change the course of history, so to speak? Right. So no, when you say, totally. why do we play, right? Well, okay. I, honestly, I think for a lot of us in the historical wargaming world, it's, we love the spectacle of it, right? That's why we want painted miniatures. That's why we want these elaborate battlefields and all this cool stuff, because we love the spectacle. But ultimately, we want to get a sense of what's happening in the history and how it may have worked, according to our understanding, But we also want to win. (laughs) Sure. Yeah, we want to change history. We want to be Caesar or, you know, Alexander the Great.
0: No, that makes total sense. So it's almost like from your perspective as a rules writer, you're trying to create mechanics that can kind of do all of those those elements and kind of bring them all together. Right. To some reasonable extent.
1: Yeah, to some reasonable extent. And you want to make it so, like, the tactics of the time are the most logical tactics to use. Right. So, I mean, I think about like in Wars, uh, Men of Bronze, I specifically downgraded the power of missile attacks, like, you know, arrows and slings and stuff. Because if I wouldn't have, well, why would anyone use a Hopolite formation to charge someone if, you can, if they're just going to be all shot down to death before they ever get there? Right and there must have, and at the time there was the reason they were, they'd use those tactics because it worked. Otherwise we wouldn't hear about it necessarily. They'd just be like, Oh, and the Greeks lost again. (laughs) Right now that makes sense. So Uh you have to create a balance around and choose what you're going to highlight and focus on based on what you understand of the period. And like I said, that's where it gets hard as a historical designer, especially because there's always somebody that knows a lot more about the period than you. (laughs) Yeah,
0: no, for sure. And to me, it's, it, if for that particular person, then make modifications, right? Yep. To me, like, that's that's kind of like the go-to, you know, uh, or at least just from my own standpoint, you know, I feel like if you're not creating house rules, um, it's probably more of your problem than the rules author's problem, you know?
1: Yeah, um, I actually put, specifically yeah. put, I think on like page five on, on them, is they're specifically about, please make house rules. You own this game now, so own it and make it your own. Uh, this is just the, I try and think of, Honestly, I kind of get this idea from like the Force on Force games and Tomorrow's War game. There's all these rules. It's a modern war game set, and I I really enjoy it. Yeah. There's all these rules in there like about, you know, from medivacs to offboard artillery to armor. And there's like, honestly, there's more rules than the game can probably handle. But you're not actually intended to use every rule every game. You're supposed to kind of choose the the rules that are going to apply to your scenario. So it's more of a toolbox. That's kind of how I try and think about like Wars of the Republic especially is much more of a toolbox rule set about doing ancient warfare um, rather than it is, no, you have to do it this way with these things every time.
0: No, for sure. And it's like a fine line, right? And I think, again, I haven't played Wars of the Republic yet, but I feel like um, what you avoided, which is a good thing, um, are those sets of rules that are almost too much of that toolbox where the sort of player is left thinking at the end, like, I'm almost going to have to invent so many different elements in order to make this game work, which is something that I do not think happened with Wars of the Republic. I feel like it's such a cohesive, um, a cohesive set of rules that, again, players can kind of add little things here and there, but those little things are not get necessarily going to become like core mechanics of the game.
1: Right. And a lot of people like to tinker around with like this, the unit profiles, like, Oh, maybe this one will move a little bit faster or this one will have sure. a lower armor rating or should have a higher armor rating or take more wounds. <laughs> totally fine. Matter of fact, I even look at it sometimes myself and I'm like, yeah, I probably should uh tweak down the courage ratings of some of these units or tweak some of them up or do things a little bit differently. But again, e- each table is going to be a little bit different. And I, and I expressly encourage people because to, to do that, because do, play what you enjoy, right? This just gives you right. an idea of a starting point that we can all agree on.
0: Sure. So for our audience, I'm about to butcher something. So luckily I have the rules author here uh, to <laughs> fix my butchering. But so when I was kind of flipping through the rules and kind of talking to some of my buddies about the game, what stood out to me more than anything else was the fact that, and again, I'll be ready for the save here, Eric. Um, so as a player, you have um, X amount of, basically like chits or tokens in front of you, and you can use those throughout the course of the game to activate units, um, to maybe steal the initiative, to impact the initiative, to rally units, things along those lines. Um, I know this is a super nerdy question, but to me, it's it's the coolest thing about the game. Where did you kind of pull that from? Was that something (laughs) that you sort of pulled out of thin air, or what were you inspired by?
1: Uh, Well, first of all, I will say... One of my philosophies as a game designer, and you know this is where everyone in the uh, interview that's listening is going to turn this off and just say, "This guy's <laughs> an idiot." <But> what, <laughs> I don't think that's f- the case,
0: but: <laughs>
1: <laughs> Well, you can tell me later. <laughs> sure, I will <won't. laughs> I don't think we're uh, big enough to get comments yet, so <laughs> Fair enough, thankfully. Um, but one of my core tenets of a game designer is, innovation is overrated, And what I mean by that is... Okay, I'm going to tell a long story so I apologize if I ramble. Now, go for it. I told you before I used to dabble a little bit with writing when I was younger and I went to a screenwriting class. And the screen <laughs> the guy basically said, "Okay, so if you're here to actually sell screenplays, here's what you need to do. Take a movie that's already very successful and put it in a different setting." <laughs> I'm like, and to my young ears I'm like, "What?" Isn't that, that's horrible. Are you supposed to create something original? And it's like, nobody wants original stuff because yeah. <laughs> it's, it's too far away from what they expect. They want a certain expectation. And if you go too far away from those expectations, the majority of people are just going to be like, what is this? This is garbage. So I think innovation is overrated in the sense that, you know, I, I think it was maybe Aristotle said, everything, every, there's nothing new under the sun, right? Basically, here's this basic plot points of every single form of fiction and that was like you know two thousand years ago we're like great uh there's really not going to be so instead of trying to create something new out of whole cloth instead think about what you want to do and go out and find the mechanics that can already do that in essence that's why it's really important for a game designer to have played and or at least read a ton of different games and even ones outside of their normal you know expertise or normal zone of interest because you can learn a lot about just general mechanics from, you know, like, well, how does magic the gathering do this? You can learn a lot about thinking about that. So anyway, so obviously the idea of the command shits isn't a new idea. Command shits have been around forever, but I, there are two places that I really remember that stuck with me. One was us, of course, Daniel mercy, and I'm sure I butchered his last name. So I apologize. Dux Belorum. First game of the Osprey Wargame series, it uses leadership tokens. And you use those to buff and debuff different units along the battle line. I thought, that's really great. That's a great mechanic because it encourages you to be part of it. It's a resource management, and you have to be in the game at all moments and deciding when you're going to use it, when you're going to save it. Is this the right time to use it or not? I was like, that's great. And then also, I think it was it was a Sam Mustafa game, and I don't remember which one, but he used something with momentum points, right? Where you basically roll the number of dice, and that's how how many commands you can get. But you don't know how many necessarily you have. So I'm like, okay. Again, more resource management. So those two things, I'm like, how do we merge those together? And I think it was maybe Warmaster Ancients where I read, and it's basically like, yeah, it's assumed that every officer in the unit knows what the heck they're doing. So they will give the appropriate orders. So if they're giving the appropriate orders, how do you represent that on the tabletop? And that's what these command chits are basically there to represent, right? This is like, everybody kind of knows what they're doing. So these command chips, chits are basically the general giving them some order beyond that to do something. Um, and then I, that, so like a lot of times it was in, in this particular game, Wars of the Republic. Like the first thing you do in a turn is both commanders make a bid on how, many of their, how much of their command they're putting into winning the initiative. So if both sides have you know, seven units, you get seven, command po- uh, seven commander's gaze points, they're called. Um, and you can say, okay, I'm going to bid three, and the other person bids two. You basically say it at the same time. And then whoever bids the most get, wins the initiative, and they can start acting. But you take them out of your pool. So if you bid a lot at the beginning, you're not going to be able to react as well as time goes on. So then when you're actually playing, you can use the command chit to to do, uh, to basically try and steal the initiative. So maybe uh, one of the other, you know, the other side moves a unit up really far and you're like, okay, I can get a flank attack on this guy and maybe wipe them out. I'm going to try and steal the initiative. Then you can use one of your chits there to try. You don't automatically steal it. There's some more details to it, but you can potentially try and steal it to, to basically take play away and take over. Um, and then you can do that back and forth as many times as you have command shits. Then in addition, you know, you use those to trigger like a unit special rules, right? So like, you know, everybody knows about the Romans and the Pilums and they throw the Pilums and all that fun stuff, right? Well, I made it so that if Romans charge, you have to use a command shit to use the Pilums, which reduces the armor of the people you're attacking. Or if they're charged, they can do the same thing, use a ch- command shit, and get charged. But if you run out of command shits, then you're not gonna be able to use those special rules. So you have to think about how you're gonna use them. You use the command chips to charge, you use it to help, you know, if you're gonna actually move into combat. Now, another thing about Wars of the Republic is that every unit when you activate them can only do, do one thing. So they can't technically move and fight at the same time. If they move and then they get attacked, then they just basically get, stand there and get attacked, right? They can't fight back. The only way you can move and fight is if you use a command point, basically a charge. That's what a charge is. And it gives gotcha. you a little bit of extra movement, but not, a, not a ton. Um, and then you can use it to like bring back the courage of your troops. So you can use it to stop them from, from wavering, which is where they get penalties in in combat because they're so battered and things like that. You can use them for a variety of different things to, to change the flow or outcome of the game. Um, And again, that's just the idea that, and I call it commander's gaze because there's a lot of times when you read in the, especially early Roman history where the commander, the general themselves got involved and said or did something particular that made the troops act a certain way. So it's supposed to represent that, you know, you're the commander to use the old process, the old thought process. So that was the idea behind it. So. That's where a lot of the decision-making comes into play because you can technically use those at any point. So even when it's your your opponent's turn, if they're doing something, you could technically use one of those command points to try and move or counter or react to what they're doing or try and steal the initiative from them at any right. point.
0: Right, and it definitely... So it keeps them engaged, you know, so they're not sort of sitting there waiting for a half hour while the enemy sort of does things and you just sort of, yes. you know, have to be passive.
1: Yes, yep, exactly. No, very cool. Because, you know, I played a lot of Warhammer 40K, and there's two things that really drove me crazy: that I'm saying I'm never doing that in a war game. One was having to sit around and wait for your opponent to do other stuff. Um, and two was um, spending a lot of time to put a bunch of guys out just to take them off the board, like before they even moved. <laughs> I said, no, I'm for never sure. Doing that in
0: one of my war games. No, for sure. Um, you know that that game can be very mathematical when it comes to list building. So I, I've yeah. been there. You know, whether it was me tabling somebody on turn one, or you know, the same thing happening to me, it felt uh, very inauthentic. I think that's yeah. probably how I would how I would phrase it. So
1: yeah, so I try and avoid uh, model removal because I've spent how long painting these miniatures and. They don't. I, I I spent more time taking them out of the case and putting them on the table than they actually spent on the table. That's not going to happen. In the, no, in totally.
0: So yeah, and, <laughs> and I think a lot of games do that these days. You know, you just yep. put some you know rocks on the back of the unit as a, you know, or like skulls or some kind of yep. shit to represent you know casualties and things like that. And correct yep. me if I'm wrong. For for your game, I mean, it's mostly d sixes where you need four or better, right? Depending on yes. like what kind of stats you have and things like that.
1: Yep, so we spoke a little bit about the unified mechanics theory. And the idea when I went into this game was that, first of all, it's a permissive game system. And what I mean by permissive is that if there's a modifier, it never takes dice away from you. It only adds on, right? So you never have to worry about subtracting dice. But it is a dice pool-based game. So basically, when you're stacking those positive modifiers, you're adding more dice to a dice pool. And then a success is always five-plus, now, there's a couple complications or, you know, if you're wavering, that changed it to five plus. But really, you're always looking for a target number of four plus for the most part. So it's really easy to to learn in that sense because the mechanics are very uncomplicated. Oh, I have to make a morale test. What's my morale stat? Roll it. Did I get a four plus? Success. If I didn't, no success. Very simple, really.
0: Right, which which lets people think, put more of their sort of energy and thinking into, well, how do I win this game as opposed to how do I play it?
1: Yes. Yeah. That's the idea. Uh, again, like I think when we were talking about play testing, most of my play testers aren't uh, historical war gamers or war gamers necessarily. Obviously they're interested in gaming and they won't object when I put down a game and say, Hey, let's play this, but they're not going to put a ton of effort into like learning the rules and all that other stuff. Right?
0: No, definitely. Do you have your own sort of game group where, where you live?
1: Yes, and I put that in quotes.
0: Gosh, <laughs> Yeah, gotcha. yeah I, I did notice you hesitated there. <laughs> yeah. Maybe a story.
1: Yeah, so uh, when I was designing this game, I kind of switched from one part of the U.S. to a different part of the U.S. Mm-hmm. So when I moved to the new part of the U.S. for a while, even though I was technically doing playtests like that, I really didn't have a group. I had to go out and build a group, which I was in a rural part of the U.S., so that wasn't exactly easy to do to find like-minded uh, war gamers. But uh, eventually, I got there. But um, but yeah, I mean, they weren't they weren't historical miniature gamers to start with. Right. They started with like magic or D anD D or things like that or board games, and I corrupted them to the dark side. <laughs> gotcha. But you know, it's
0: interesting, like and this is meant as a compliment um you know as you've been describing your game i mean i can definitely see the connection to board games and things along those lines like i'm not surprised by 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 what you're saying um and that's not that's a good thing you know cuz um even though you're talking about and you've mentioned this a few times like the idea of being a rules author or a designer and kind of um Taking from you know you know games of yours so to speak, but in all seriousness, your your game doesn't necessarily feel like a DBA or it doesn't feel like a WRG or an Armadi. It does definitely feel like a little bit of a breath of fresh air, which is which is again you know a compliment. It's that's that's definitely a place that's that's not bad to be as a rules designer. You know.
1: Yeah, uh, I'm glad you said that because it was designed to play fast. Uh, some of the original rules and the scenarios basically are, it goes six turns or one hour, whichever happens first. So it was designed to play really fast. And some of the, like I said, the scenario was designed, the actual play was supposed to be less than one hour because, uh, I don't know about you Jared, but yes, between work and, and family and all that other stuff, I don't get a ton of time to play games. Like I used (laughs) to, like when I was a kid, a kid, uh, Sure. I'd spend all day playing a game of D&D or Warhammer or, you know, Axis and Allies or whatever. It was no problem. It was great. Fantastic yeah. memories. Nowadays, if I tried to spend all day playing a war game, somebody would be after my head. <laughs> Somebody's, Somebody's not going to be happy.
0: Yeah, no, for yeah. sure. Well, here's the thing. I do get that. But for me, I basically took my hobby that I really liked. It kind of turned it into my life, but not in a bad way, you know, not to make it something that's not fun. But, but I totally understand what you mean. You know, for me, It's less about the expenditure of time and more about just the fact that back in the day, like I enjoyed sitting there for seven hours and playing, you know, a Napoleonic game with 5,000 figures on each side. I'm just not that person anymore. Like I want a game that is done maximum two to three hours. And then I want to be barbecuing outside or, you know, having a beer with friends or something along those lines. So in that sense, that's kind of how, how I'm different. Cause again, like, I don't know how old you are and I'm not going to ask, but you know, I mean, I was basically, you know, as a little kid gaming in the nineties, um, at HMGS cons. And I definitely played some of those games where you're just sort of there all day long. And, you know, again, um, not necessarily for me anymore. I want to be done in a dealer area, you know, in a, in a reasonable amount of time. So, and by the way, on that note, um, Eric, have you brought this game to like, you know, big conventions, whether they're in the States or overseas or anything along those lines? Cause I would imagine that would be a, a really exciting thing for, for fans of yours and fans of your rules.
1: So I have a terrible, terrible confession to make. No, that's fine. Go for it. I've never been to a games convention, Eric. Good God. <laughs> Know what
0: is wrong with me? Eric, uh, uh, how have you how have you not been to it all right, like here, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna pick at you. Let's do this in a professional way. So Eric, <laughs> what has what has prevented you from getting to a glorious convention with thousands of people just waiting for you to be there because of your games?
1: Uh you're too kind. <laughs> um <laughs> uh one is uh, you know, I've usually lived in a rural area, right? Mm-hmm. So when I, when, I just, when I decided to be a wargamer way back in the days, I, I was like the crazy person, right? Nobody even knew what this was, much less, you know. They maybe played D&D and some board games. That was it. So mm-hmm. when I'm like, no, 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 we're going to actually take these little guys made of metal and we're going to paint them. And then we're going to have them move around the board and go pew, pew at each other. <laughs> right. <People laughs> we're like... Um, I outgrew that like 10 years ago, friend. right? Sure, sure, sure. <laughs> and I'm like, no, 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 you don't get it. But so I've always had to kind of like make my own, make my own groups and hobbies, right? Uh, cause I live in rural areas. I remember, uh, even like when I started like in the GW world, it was all mail order all the time because you really couldn't find it any place locally. Um, so, so distance was a problem just right. getting there physically and being involved with it. Uh, was, has always been a major roadblock and then the time piece, time and money to do it has always been a roadblock as well. Cause you know, I'm a professional folk person now. So I'm like, um, yeah, uh, I have to. I have to do this instead, or I have to. I'd love to go to this game convention, but instead I have to pay the money to reside my house or something like that. No, totally, know? totally, totally. So,
0: really, what you're saying is HMGS NextGenic needs to start working with corporations so that we could have the funds, for example, to fly you out to a convention and house you somewhere so that you can yeah, come I, and run some games under the Next Gen banner.
1: Yeah, I would totally love to do that. I've also, you know, I've always been interested in like starting my own con. Right. Locally, it's like because you know that's how I've been in the past. Like if it's not here, I'll just have to build it myself. No, absolutely. That one's been a bridge too far. That's why I'm like when I see you like going to the local library and stuff like that. I'm like, that's great. I should do that. Yeah. No, you <laughs> definitely can.
0: And again, I know uh, you know for, for our listeners out there, you know Eric gave a very nice compliment before we sort of uh, before we started the podcast, which is um, you know how well NextGen is doing. And I never talk about Next Gen because I'm usually the one asking questions, but. On on all of this on this note, I mean, Eric, it's definitely doable. I mean, you know, it you know, if you wanted, for example, to, you know, connect with a library or use next gen as leverage to kind of you know get an in in your local area, what I have found, um, without totally sidetracking the conversation, what I have found is that There are young people and older folks alike out there that want to game that that have been in situations like you've been in where you kind of almost have to build the community. So what NextGen is trying to do, if if you go on our website, you know, little little pitch here, you know, www.nextgengaming.org. If you look at our mission statement, I mean, what we're trying to do is we're trying to almost be a facilitator in building those kinds of communities. So. I guess Eric what I'm trying to say is I mean there you know there there is definitely a way to do that and that's something that maybe um you know when we're off air we can definitely talk about and and for all, all the other listeners out there you know I mean if you contact us you know we we have developed a little system to to get people playing out there so and by the awesome. way Eric, yeah absolutely and by the way Eric on that note as we kind of slowly but surely wrap this podcast up, which, by the way, I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed talking with you. I always like talking to interesting people and, and rules designers. Um, what are you kind of doing in the future? I mean, are you are you writing some new rules? Is this something that really has become a, a big part of your life, or is it more like kind of like a, a one-and-done, or in your case, a three-and-done? Because I know you can <laughs> put three sets of rules out.
1: Yeah, three sets of rules. Um, so I still write rules. I mean... <laughs> You know, uh, we had the conversations, like, people ask me, what did you do to be a, a war game designer? I am like, well, honestly, it's kind of like, I'm not a war game designer because, um, you know, I was hired to it. I'm doing, I, I obviously love it. I have to do it. Honestly, I can't help myself. Right. Um, uh, even, even if I hadn't published anything through Osprey, I'd still be writing rules. Um, you know, I have a, Blood and Spectacles is my, is my name for just myself personally. And I've got, uh, a website, I've got a war games vault page. I've got like 20 some different sets of rules out there. Got a Patreon. I've got Instagram and Facebook. Obviously you got, you know, that's, that's where we connected. So I'm always putting together different stuff. um, because I, I just can't help it. Right. I just, if I'm sometimes I'm just like, you know, I have a moment between meetings. I'm like, Oh, I have, I have like a notebook I keep next to me. That's it's my concept folder. I have all the concepts and all these ideas and all these different things written down. So what I'm working on now is I've been working on basically taking the Men in, br- men in Bronze model. I call it the men in bro- M-O-B model. Mm-hmm. You know, the same basic unified mechanics, but how do I apply them to, uh, I've been really interested in like Syrian warfare. So Assyrian being like, you know, Bronze Age chariots and early Iron Age. So I've been working on trying to get together something to do with that. Um, And I've also been trying to apply it to late Roman warfare. So we're talking like early Byzantium and, you know, the migrate barbarian migrations and stuff like that. So those are a couple of projects I'm working on in the historical space. In the less than historical space, you know, I also published with Osprey Castles in the Sky which is a game about you know, flying battleships of World War I, which obviously is ahistorical. Um, but I've been thinking about, well, how do I expand that? One thing if you guys, some of you guys may be familiar with the, the, the Dystopian Wars mod, uh, you know, where they have basically a land, sea, and air component to their that game. That was a really cool um, line of miniatures. Yeah. From what right. I remember. And, yeah, exactly. And that's actually kind of what got me thinking about flying battleships was when they had those for the French. Um, and then, uh, you know, and also there's always been a dream when you're like a 40Kers, you want to have like an epic Battlefleet Gothic, you know, Warhammer 40K, just a whole bit, all in one. So I've been working on, okay, well, if I take House in the Sky and I think about the universe, the universe of it, there would probably be land battleship or land ironclads so what if I made a rule set where Cast in the Sky and the Land Ironclads could interact together and basically do that combined arms kind of approach? What would that look like? So I've been working on that a little bit, and I tentatively call that like Mobile Fortress for Dunn. Oh, that's, that's the, a very cool name. Thank you. Uh, that's kind of like the test the, the test for that one so i'm always working on everything so those are three that i have like most in my hopper but literally i have uh, like nine or ten games at a time that are in various stages of production i've actually found i can write rules way faster than i can produce rules if that makes sense
0: it does no it makes it <laughs> makes complete sense because i'm a musician on the side you know for fun and it, it it's very easy to throw a lot of riffs together. It's another thing to put a cohesive song together. So I completely understand what you mean.
1: Yeah. There's a certain, even in PDF rules, there's a certain standard of completeness people want now of like pictures and uh, text layout and editing and diagrams and quick reference guides and, and things like that. So, you know, to, to take something from rules to that level of completeness is much harder because you have to think about photographs and working with artists and, and things along those lines. So there's lots of different stuff involved with that, but so I'm always working on stuff. There's, I've got a bunch of stuff on my war games vault page too. And if you follow my Patreon, (laughs) you can, you, uh, I give the people that follow me on Patreon, like uh, a lot of my early games just for free. It's like, please take them, take them. (laughs) (laughs) No, that's great. And by the way, like my
0: hope is that, you know, with, with any luck, um, hopefully you're going to get some hits and, you know, I just want more people to play your games. I mean, like I said, it was being very genuine. Like uh, even though I haven't played um, Wars of the Republic yet, there are just so many mechanics in there that sounded just wonderful, you know? So like I said, big kudos to you, Eric. And um, like I said, I, I'm really thankful that you, uh, you decided to take me up on, on coming on the pod and having this conversation.
1: Well, like I said, I appreciate it. Cause I went back and uh, listened to some of the other uh, co- guests you've had. And I'm like, Oh, Oh, boy. Uh, I'm way out of my depth. Oh, please. You did a great job.
0: Now, this was a lot of fun. Um, Look, I always find that the people who do the best work typically are humble and think the way that you do, you know. And for me, it's like that's kind of part of the reason I want to do this is because I'm rather sure that people out there aren't going to think of that of you. Like they're going to look at you as this very, again, like I know you hate the word, but, you know, very innovative in a lot of ways. So. Um, we'll have to have you on again at some point. And then hopefully by then, I will have played Wars of the Republic so we can uh, we can chat a little bit further or whatever topic you want to kind of get into. So,
1: Of course, if you have any questions about it, of course, you can uh, reach me at Instagram and I'll be more than happy to, to answer them.
0: And you were saying Blood and Spectacles, is if somebody wants to find you on the internet, even though that yeah. sounds a little creepy, Blood and Spectacles, if they type that in, they'll be able to find um, your different yep. pages. Yep, we right, awesome. websites,
1: blogs, message board that's usually where people reach out and say hey how does if this and this and this happens what should be the results and i'm like <laughs> gotcha. i gotcha i don't know no i'm just kidding
0: <laughs> <laughs> well on that note all right everybody uh i hope you guys have again like have a good morning or a good day or a good evening depending on when you're listening and uh i'm gonna sign off eric one more time thanks so much buddy thanks jared all right bye-bye all right everyone see you thank you so much for listening to today's 20-sided Gamified podcast. I hope you got as much out of the conversation as I did. If you're interested in learning more about the organizations I work with, please visit www.nextgengaming.org and www.nasaga.org. My Instagram handle is hmgs underscore nextgen underscore Until next time. Be well, get some gaming in, and roll some 20s. Thank you so much.